Good morning. Welcome to St. James. I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, welcome to whoever's watching on the live stream. We have uh, a new sound system that got installed this week. And so uh, it's going to, just ironing the kinks out is going to be a process. So I'll try to like talk appropriate to the setting and not blow us all out. But they're still working on it and it's getting fixed. It's, it's already been fixed. It's going to be way better than it has been. Uh, it had a lot of dead spots in here. If you've, like, if you've walked around, there are places like, where the music is just super loud, and then you've like three pews away, you can't hear it. So this is going to help out with stuff like that. Um, also, uh, just a few announcements real quick. So everything's on today. Uh, Bible study after this. We're talking in adult Bible study. We're talking about the signs of the times. So we're going to talk, we're gonna talk this morning about the specific signs of the times leading up to um, uh, the second coming of Jesus. So join us for that. Uh, kids, uh, Sunday school also right after uh, this. Tonight, uh, 5.30 prayer and 6 o'clock is going to be a new members class. Now tonight for new, new members class, we're going to be talking about communion. And so if, if you're uh, uh, in the class, of course, you should be there. But if you're not in the class, but sometimes I, I have conversations with Lutherans about, I think I know what I believe about stuff like communion, uh, but I can't remember why it is that I believe that then this would be a good night to come, and we're going to talk about it and bring your questions and your comments, and uh, we'll have a good time. That's at 6 o'clock, and it goes to about 7.30, so uh, we'll meet together uh, tonight for that. Uh, Tuesday morning, uh, men's Bible study, and uh, that's at 6.30 in the morning, and that's all the announcements I have. So let's go ahead and stand, and we will uh, sing the first hymn. Yeah, then. 
So the second verse says that uh, Jesus is the fruit of the mystic rose, yet of that rose the stem. Okay, so just a quick side, educational sidebar here. The mystic rose, it's kind of, that's kind of a medieval way of talking about Mary, the Virgin Mary. So to call Jesus the fruit of the mystic rose, yet of that rose the stem, means that he comes from the rose. He gave life to the rose too. So he created Mary, he gave life to her, and she also gave birth to him, she gave life to him. So he's the fruit of her, but he's also the stem of that rose as well. Okay, that's just a bonus material. Uh, let's continue in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's confess our sin to God our Father. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. We pour out our souls to you because by our own efforts we have failed. Nothing we have tried has worked. We have tried again and again, and still we have failed. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. Save us from the embarrassment of our failure. Save us from envying those who have apparently succeeded. Grant us some signs of success that we not always be ashamed. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. You know our need. You know our struggles, our brokenness, our sins. You know that without your mercy, we can do nothing. Grant us mercy for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from 1 John. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the expiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Amen. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 41, let's read Psalm 41 together. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice. When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout and triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen.
be seated. The Old Testament reading is from Leviticus 18 and uh, a little bit from Leviticus 19. And as I read this, um, as, as we read this together, think about the different ways in which God's vision for how his people are to treat other people clashes with all the different options available in our culture for you know, economic structures and the way we think about money and neighbors. So in Leviticus 18, God says this, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. So the gleanings, what's left over after the crop has been harvested. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. So don't pick all the grapes off the vines. Leave some on there. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the, to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slander among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, epistle reading. Um, this is what we read last week, plus adding on verses six through nine. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and here's what they wrote. This is a quote. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, and now Paul's gonna respond to that quote. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. A am being single. Paul, Paul is unmarried. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to be aflame with passion. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
please stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 10. Glory to you, O Lord. So this is the, uh, this is the famous uh, um, Good Samaritan story. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, these are two professional religious people, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Uh, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, Samaritans and Jews uh, do not get along, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. again at 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 1 through 9, and uh, focusing um, on uh, verses 6 through 9. Uh, so just to kind of reset from last week, and there's two, two basic principles that we talked about from this text uh, last week that, that, that are guiding and foundational and will underpin everything that we're going to talk about as we talk about 1 Corinthians 7. And those two principles are, first of all, we don't own ourselves because we've been bought with a price. It is a lie 
that you are a sovereign individual who has the right to choose for yourself what's right for you. Now, there's a very, very blanket statement. And of course, there's a lot of nuance there. This is not a justification for codependent relationships or slavery. But in general, we as Americans tend to think that I'm in charge. I'm the captain of my fate and the master of my own destiny. And nobody has a right to tell me what to do. And when they do, if I do what they tell me to do, it's not authentic. As it, it's not as authentic as it would be if I chose it authentically and even extemporaneously from myself. That's not the reality. Paul insists in 1 Corinthians 6, and once again, I didn't put this in the bulletin, but, but I'll do this next week. The, the, the verse is right before our text here from 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you know that your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are not your own. That's maybe the most, there's a lot of things that Paul's gonna say in this chapter that are very countercultural and cut against what we as Americans think about ourselves. But this is the heartbeat of all of them. You are not your own. We don't belong to ourselves because we were bought with a price. When Jesus died on the cross and shed his own blood to save us, that means we're not our own anymore. We've been bought and we never were our own. Like, you know, the, the, like, like Bob Dylan says, you're gonna serve somebody. You gotta serve somebody. And it's either Egypt, it's either money or sex or power or control or self-respect or any number of addictions. You're gonna serve that or you're gonna belong and be a, uh, belong and be a piece of property of God's. Now, when I say piece of property, I don't mean that he objectifies us. We're actually never more human we're never more free than when we're basking in his ownership of us. We never have more control over ourselves than when he has control of us. But basic number one principle is we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God. We belong to God. And I know, so for those of you who are unbelievers, I'm guessing that you can feel the weight of that. For those of you who are believers, it's just kind of cliche. Oh, yeah, yeah, God owns me. But how often do we live in light of that ownership? How often, okay, yeah, God owns me. But then I like walk around and live my life as though I'm in charge and Angela better agree with me and you guys better agree with me. And if it's, if it's not what I'm really feeling in the moment, it's not authentic. Even though like on paper, I believe that God's in charge. And the, the, what this whole chapter is about is like, it's not just on paper, but it's also in my bed. It's also around my dinner table. It's also in my bank account. It's also when I relate to you guys God is in charge of me. I don't belong to myself. That's principle number one. Principle number two is, like on the surface, and very, 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 very important, it's about sex within marriage. But if you remember last week, I'm gonna pull out the deeper principles behind it and apply it broadly to our lives, married, unmarried, whatever. Um, and it, in marriage as well, it's not just about sex. It's about everything that happens in all of your relationships. Principle number one, we don't belong to ourselves, we belong to God. Principle number two, I don't own myself my wife owns me. You do not own yourself. Somebody else owns you. That's the second principle. And that, that's even maybe a little bit, well, it's maybe harder because you can be like, well, I, I trust God. But it's harder to trust people. It's harder to belong to a church. It's harder to belong to a woman. It's harder to belong to a group of kids. It's harder to belong to a community group because they're screwed up too. You know, you don't wanna be owned by screwed up people. But the good news is, is that's so in your face that that's actually maybe in some ways, it's harder to escape that 
It's, e- it's easier to escape, oh, God owns me, yeah, and then I just kind of ignore him. But I, I can't ignore my family or you guys or my community group or my next-door neighbors. And this is the second principle is, and we get this from, look down at verse four with me again. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And just to, again, to kind of reset from last week, on the, the surface principle is this, is within marriage, your sexuality is not about you and getting, uh, you know, it's not your spouse's job to fulfill you sexually. What Paul is saying here is actually it's your job to serve and love your spouse. And that's the, that's the surface principle. The broader principle is this, is it's not anybody's job to serve me and take care of me and fulfill me. God did not put you here as extras in the movie that is the story of my life. God put me here to serve you guys. I'm to be the extra in the movie that's the story of your life, my kid's life, Angela's life. That's, that's, and I'm, not, I'm still working on it. It's a big work in progress. But that's what, that's what verse four means is I don't belong to myself. God did not put me here to be served by you. God put me here to serve you. I don't belong to myself. I belong to you guys. I belong to Angela. I belong to my kids. So also, too, I didn't mention this last week, but I, uh, there's, you know, I, I did tell you about the, the, the kid I had in senior religion at Mel's who said, that sounds toxic. And so what he's thinking is this, is he's thinking the notion that another person owns my body, even within marriage, violates his deep, deep sense of the value of the sovereign individuals. He's more American than Christian at that moment. That, that, that's what's offensive to him. But there's something else that's even more, that, there's something else that you should know about this. This actually, so one of the things that you hear when you talk to unbelievers, and maybe those of you who've you know, come to faith recently and you can remember this, or those of you who aren't believers, this might be, uh, yeah, th- this might be one of your objections to Christianity, is, and you'll hear this frequently, is that Christianity oppresses women. Christianity is oppressive to women. But let me just point out to you how radically liberating this is. In the ancient world, nobody thought of women as equal with men. Nobody did. You can read Aristotle, you can read Cicero, you can read Plato, you can read Plutarch, you can read Pliny the Elder, you can read the writings of Julius Caesar. Women's job was to serve men, sexually and practically. That's Everybody, everybody in the ancient world agrees, agrees with that. In the, Greco, in the Greco-Roman world, a man was allowed to have three different types of sexual partners. It was, it was expected, and, and the wealthier you were and the more you were able to take care of you know, a, vast, a, a bigger array of sexual partners, the more that this was okay. You were expected to have, if you were a free Roman man living in the time of Jesus, you were expected to have a wife. Your wife's job was to give you legitimate children. That was your primary job, and to take care of the house. You were also expected to have, it would be fully expected that you would have mistresses. That was expected too. They could not be free women. They had to be unmarried, sometimes registered as prostitutes. They wouldn't actually be prostitutes, but this would be, this is what they would do. You were also expected, the third category is this. If you owned slaves, it was fully expected that those slaves, male and female, would be available for your sexual pleasure. That's just the way the world worked. And so it's not surprising when Paul deals with, first, with the church at Corinth that he's dealing with all kinds of weird, messed up ideas about human sexuality. Because that's the way 
women in general were thought of. It's your job, woman, to give sexual satisfaction to your man. It's your job to be a servant. You belong to the man. The Jewish world was the same. I'm not going to give this quote again, but sometime within the past five or six months, I, I, I quoted to you guys from the Mishnah, the Jewish, it's a contemporary of Jesus' day. A, the Mishnah is a Jewish interpretation, oral tradition based upon the writings of Moses. And uh, one rabbi in the Mishnah says that it is okay to divorce your wife for any reason whatsoever. She doesn't satisfy you sexually was one of the reasons given. One of the reasons was is you don't like her cooking. The rabbi, without any sort of sense of irony, says this. If you don't like your wife's cooking, you can get rid of her. Why? What, 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 what's the basic principle behind that? The woman belongs to the man. And if she isn't doing what satisfies the man, he's free to get rid of her. That's the way everybody in the ancient world thought. What Paul is saying here is so incredibly radical that a woman, that a wife, has just as much authority over her husband as the husband has over the wife. That it is a shared, mutual, equal authority that each has over the other. And a husband does not have the freedom to use his wife for sexual pleasure and then move on to whatever other woman he, he, he wants or needs. The, the husband actually belongs to his wife and answers to her. She owns him. This is so, so radical. I'm gonna make, make another radical statement that I've just made recently. And again, I'll point you to Tom Holland's book, Dominion, which he just wrote a few years ago. I've mentioned him before. Tom Holland is not a Christian. He's a historian from uh, England. He wrote this book called Dominion. And, and he said, I just heard an interview with him recently where he says, I, I, he's, he's an ancient historian. He's written books about ancient Persia and ancient Rome and ancient Greece. And he said, I realized as I was studying the ancient Persians and Greeks and Romans that my life actually looks nothing like theirs. Vengeance, violence, Sexual promiscuity, that's the way that world worked. Honor meant if somebody challenged you, it was your job to harm them in some way. And he's like, I, I, why is it that I'm the way I am? He asked himself the question. And he started studying and he realized it's Christianity. The reason why I think racism is wrong, the, re the reason why I think that women are just as much human as men are, is basically only Christianity. Christianity has taught us that. And so when we read this, I just want you to, I want to point out how radical it is what Paul's saying, but also how liberating it is as well. Also how liberating it is as well. Okay, so now these are the, these are the two basic principles, and last week we talked about marriage, but today we're going to talk about um, people who are not married, and in verses 6 through 9, Paul discusses them, and these two principles hold, all right, that single people do not belong to themselves, they belong to God. Single people also do not belong to them. so there's this, you know, this, there's a sort of myth with the single life is like, well, that's free. You get to do whatever you want. And, and there's a sort of sense in which that's true, of course. Like if you're single, you could, you know, you could, I don't know, uh, you know, drive to Indianapolis tonight and spend the night. I can't do that. I can't just like leave and go to Indianapolis and then call Angela and say I decided to go to Indianapolis. There's a certain sense in which that's true. But there's a certain biblical sense, which is even closer to the heart of the matter, in which single people as well do not belong to themselves. They are not their own. They belong to Jesus first and to the body of Christ as well. And so that's what I want to look at today. Take these two principles that we talked about last week and work through verses 6 through 9. So Paul says in 6 through 9, let me read them again real quick to you. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. He's not saying I think everybody should be single, but Paul is single. We don't know why he's single. We don't know um, 
almost certainly he was married at some point. It's very, very rare for a Jewish rabbi to not be married. But his wife has passed away, which would not be abnormal, or perhaps she left him when he became a Christian, or uh, we're not sure. But he says, um, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they can't exercise self-control, he means sexual self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay, so th- th- what I'm going to do today is this is going to be, I think this is going to be fairly brief from here on out. I'm gonna do, it's going to be just kind of a brief intro to way, the way Paul talks and thinks about unmarried people. We're going to unpack this in more depth when we get to verses 25 and 35, 25 through 35 in this chapter. And when we get there, we'll talk about the way Jesus thinks about singleness as well and the way singleness looks in the story of the Bible from beginning to end. And we'll get there more in depth. But right now, just an intro to some basic things that Paul says in these verses about, about singleness and what it means to be single. So first of all, uh, first point here, the single life is good. The single life is good. I wish that all were as I myself am. Paul doesn't, so we don't know, again, we don't know why Paul is single, but we do know that Paul thinks that being single is preferable to being married, at least for him. And it's not just like, well, this is kind of my thing. It's actually strong enough that he says, I wish that everybody was like this. Now, of course, that's not possible because, like, somebody's got to be making the babies, right? But in a certain sense, he's so bought into this life as, as an unmarried person that he's like, I wish that everybody else could be in the same position that I am as well. Reasons, again, so there's more, and more when we get to verses 25 through 35. The unmarried life is free from the anxieties of marriage. He's going to say in verses 33 through 34, let me just touch on this. He's basically going to say married people have to worry about other people. Married people have to worry about their spouse and their kids. Unmarried people... Don't have to do that. There's a, there's a certain level of anxiety that's not there. In fact, he actually says, and this is the second point, that unmarried people are free to be anxious about the things of the Lord. Unmarried people are free to devote themselves, like Paul does, to the things of the Lord. So the unmarried life liberates us to serve and love God with a single-mindedness not available to people with spouses or children. There's, um, there's a, 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 one of the preachers that's real, been real influential on me. I've got a bunch of his commentaries, and he's one of my favorite preachers to listen to. He's passed away now. Is a guy by the name of John Stott. John Stott was an Anglican preacher in uh, London. He passed away maybe 10 years ago now. But John Stott was like, so 50 years ago, uh, the ch- 60 years ago, the Church of England was pretty much all like, you could go there and you weren't going to hear much of a sermon about the Scripture, you know. Is uh, not a lot of affirmation that Jesus was God in the flesh. Not a lot of affirmation that Jesus rose from the dead physically. John Stott kind of stood up in the middle of the the Anglican church and said, this is what the Bible says and this is what I'm going to preach. As a result, like his church in London just exploded with people who were hungry for reality. You know, you just don't go to church to hear, you know, sort of a a soft pat on the head sermon about uh, the brotherhood of man and the love of the divine being and those sorts of things. People wanted to know, like, what's real? And John Stott preached from the Bible, what's real? John Stott never married. And so I've got a biography, a biography of his downstairs. And when you read it, one of the things that I think about is, dang, he gets a lot of stuff done. <laughs> like, he talks to a lot of people. 
and he's written a lot of books, and he's traveled to a lot of places. And there's something that's sort of attractive about that, to be able to get that done. Now, but I, I could not live the life he lived. I couldn't go home alone every night. And it's easy, especially now, to say that with Angela and the kids. It's like, I, I can't imagine a world without them. But when I look at his life, just decontextualize, I think, he got so much done. He got so much done. And he was married to Jesus. Like, he didn't go home at night and talk to the spouse and the kids, which is a wonderful thing, by the way, too. I don't want anybody to, please go back and listen to last week. Like, marriage is an incredible gift of God. But, so I don't want to downplay that. But there's something wonderful about being like, it's just me and the Lord. It's just me and the Lord. And that's who I can focus on. Um, and Paul's kind of encouraging them that this is a good life. This is a good life. Now, this is hard for a lot of us to understand. For those of you who are married, for those of you who are happily married, for those of you who are about to get married and are in love, whatever the heck that means, it's hard for us to understand why Paul would be like, you should be single. The single life is really, really good. But let's pause for a second and ask ourselves, why? Why do we think that? And the reason why, if you're happily married, you're like, oh, that's, I don't get that. I can't imagine that. If you're unhappily married or you're not married but with no desire to get married, you also think a certain sort of like, yeah, man, the single life is good. I don't want nobody else telling me what to do. Both of those ideas are wrong, and the reason why is this. The reason why we as Americans struggle with this is because you and I as Americans are fundamentally romantic. There's nothing you can do about it. There's really nothing you can do. Now, I know some of you are more cynical. Some of you are more logical than others. But basically, we as Americans believe that powerful emotional experiences are at the heart of who we are as authentic individuals. And like I said, there's nothing you can do about it. That was sealed in fate 200 years ago. The Enlightenment happens, and the Enlightenment, so this is a little history of philosophy review. About 300, 350, 400 years ago, the Enlightenment happens, and the Enlightenment says, God, you don't need him. Church, you don't need him. For those of you who like that sort of thing, that's fine, but you really don't need him because humans are rational, sentient beings who use logic. And so you really don't need God to explain things. You don't need all that superstition because we have logic. And for about 100 years, it's called the neoclassical movement, um, late 1600s up to the uh, um, uh, early 1800s, like logic and rigor and order was the way that sensible people made sense of the world. Well, in the early 1800s, a lot of people who also equally as smart started saying, we can't live like this anymore. I'm not a math problem. I'm not a chemical formula. Like, I want to feel things. And people used to get their feels in church. People used to go to church for logic and reason and thinking and also feeling simultaneously. But if you take away God and you say, we don't need that because we have logic, then you're going to have to go somewhere else. And the culture, instead of saying, we should never have gotten rid of God, said, you know what, all that logic is bad. Let's go for feelings. And the Romantic movement was born. You can, you can read you know, romantic poetry. You can uh, watch romantic movies. You can listen to romantic music. It is still very much a part of our lives today. I'm going to give you two quotes. One from um, this really remarkable article that appeared in The Atlantic magazine, actually in 1938, by a French writer named Raoul de Rousseau. Uh, Raoul de Russy de Sale, and he, he's from France, and he was writing about Americans, and uh, the title of the article is Love in America. You can find it online still. 
And basically what he argues in this is, Americans are weird because Americans are obsessed, obsessed with being in love. And not only that, unlike the French, Americans believe that being in love is going to save them. It's actually going to be their happily ever after moment. And so this is in 1938. He's like, he says, he says in this article, he says, I lived in America for several years, and when I got back to France, I was astonished when I turned on my radio how few of our French songs have to do with being in love and being saved by a lover and, you know, my, 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 uh, you know, my, my boyfriend rescuing me and taking me to heaven and whatever it is. So, so, so many of our songs are about politics and things like that and war. And if you go to America, all their songs, all their movies are about people struggling through life and then they connect with the good-looking person and they make out, cut to end credits. Life is better. Everything's happy forever after. And he's like, this is just such a weird way of thinking about love. But honestly, it's what you and I struggle with. And in this article, he says this. It's as if the, it's, it's, it is as if the experience of love for Americans, he means, could only be one of two things. A superhuman ecstasy, the way of reaching heaven on earth and in pairs. Or, for those who have failed at love, it's a psychopathic condition to be treated by specialists. So that's, what, and he argues in this, this is the position we've put ourselves in. That we alternately believe that love is just going to make us super happy and fulfill us, and then we'll, be, we'll actually be real human beings. And when that inevitably fails, either because you've, you know, a, a, a lover turns bad on you or a marriage goes south, or you just wake up one morning and you realize this is just kind of boring being married. It's just kind of humdrum. Then we treat it as a psychopathic condition that, okay, I, I got to get fixed. I need to get therapy. Or I, I, need to I need to get rid of this person and find somebody else. Because all of us are obsessed as Americans with this notion that love is going to save us, that romance is going to save us. One more quote by a writer named Chuck Klosterman. Chuck Klosterman, he's a current writer. He's still alive. He basically writes about pop culture from the 70s and 80s, which is why I'm interested in him. And in a book he wrote called Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, he wrote an essay called This is Emo. And I'm not going to tell you about the whole essay, but he says, whenever I meet dynamic, non-retarded Americans... I notice they all seem to share a single unifying characteristic, the inability to experience the kind of mind-blowing, transcendent romantic relationship they perceive to be a normal part of living. Let me read that again. So every American I meet struggles with one thing. He says it's what binds all Americans together, the inability to experience the kind of mind-blowing, transcendent romantic relationship they perceive to be a part of normal living. Everybody thinks I should be like having tons of feels. I should be in love. My significant other should be making me so happy. And that doesn't happen. There's not a single human being that can make you permanently happy. For those of you who have never been married, and especially for those of you who haven't been married, but you're in love, you think, no, it's just old man talk here. Like you're just wearing your own marriage frustrations on your shoulders in front of everybody. Well, so yeah, I'm doing that, but I'll just... All I can do is say, hang in there. You, you'll, you'll be with the rest of us in a little bit. And, and I'm not saying that marriage is not happy and, de and deeply fulfilling and deeply satisfying, but it is never happy or deeply fulfilling or satisfying in the way that these two guys are describing the American notion that it can be. It will be happy and fulfilling and satisfying through Paul's notion, which is giving up the self for the other. Now, what does this have to do with uh, us today and talking about um, people who aren't married? One of the things that it's done is this. 
besides the struggles in our own marriages, it has made us, all Americans, but especially within the American Christian church, it has made us look at people who are single as some sort of like, like freak show or defect. And we don't know what to do with single people. You know, you, have, you, know, you and your spouse have people over to the house and like, so you know, we're gonna invite a single person? Well, I guess so, but that means we have to invite another single person because we only deal with people in pairs you know, you get married and you have kids and that's the people that you want to hang out with that you can. And so what happens is we take singles and we push them into singles ministry. You know, here, like you guys go to this room and maybe, maybe somewhere in that room you can, find, you can find your special someone and then come out here with the rest of us normal people as a couple. And what happens is we marginalize single people and it's, t- it's time for us to start doing that because widows, widowers, uh, people who are uh, unmarried, it's what we, so it's a lot of times we do this with how many times do we invite like teenagers into um, like a social conversation as an equal? Now part of that's age, right? But part of that is like there's a certain sort of sense in our culture that if you're not having, if you're not having an active monogamous sex life, if you're not participating in that, then somehow you're less than, and that's actually a very, very pagan sexual revolution belief. It's not Christian at all. And so we need to, we need to start unmarginalizing those who aren't married. And, and because Paul says this is good. This is the way that he wishes that many of us would live our lives. It's not some sort of defect. It's not some sort of like abnormal situation. The unmarried life is good. Also he says this, the unmarried life is for, for those who are living in self-control. Look at verse nine. But if they cannot exercise self-control, unmarried people, they should marry for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Actually the word cannot is not in... Um, it's not in the original. It's not in Greek. It doesn't say, uh, it doesn't say uh, but if they cannot exercise self-control. It says if they, if they aren't exercising self-control is literally what it says. So this is less to do about like trying. I need to try to exercise self-control. Okay, I'm not married. I shouldn't be having sex since I'm not married. I'm gonna try to exercise self-control. Paul instead is saying this. If you aren't exercising self-control, you should get married. One of the things he's saying, I mean, this is the big principle is, you can tell if you have the gift of singleness if you are in control of your sexual desires. It doesn't mean that people who are single don't have sexual desires, but people who have the gift of singleness have been given by the Holy Spirit control over that. They don't cave into those desires. Again, it's hard to talk about this post-sexual revolution because there's a part of us that's like, why wouldn't you give into sexual desires? That's a normal part of humanity. Like, isn't, won't you go insane if you're not having sex? And one of the things Paul is saying is, no, you won't. Like, you know, sex is not the greatest thing that ever was invented. I was uh, talking to uh, Chuck Rather while we were doing the podcast recently, and we were talking about, which we're going to get to this when we get to verses 25 through 35, is when Jesus teaches about in the new creation, we'll all be like angels, we won't have spouses. And um, for for those of us who are married, you're like, so so, what do you mean? In the new creation, there won't be sex? Uh, I don't know if I like that very much. And what Lewis says, that's, that's, that's kind of a, a sort of a mental immaturity. It's, it's, you know, we imagine now, for those of you who are married, you imagine that sex is a really, really, like I can't, can't imagine living without it. But actually, he said it's like, you just don't know. You don't know, you don't know if sex is kind of the weak precursor to some better pleasure, more intense intimacy, a more deeper knowledge of other people 
then you could, that, that sex only points to. And, and Lewis says this. He's like, if you, say to a, if you say to a kid, if you say to a young kid, if you say, hey, the greatest pleasure in the world is sex, that kid's going to walk away saying, sex must have something to do with chocolate. Because the little kid, all he can think about is, is that the greatest pleasure in the world is chocolate. And I was telling Chuck, I, was, I distinctly remember when I was a kid, sitting down in front of a TV on Saturday mornings with a bowl of Fruity Pebbles in my lap, watching cartoons and thinking, this is it. Like, this is heaven. Like, I don't need anything else in my life. I will never not love this. And now when I look back at that, 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 uh, that little kid, I totally get where he was coming from. I can see, but now I see that that was, there's actually things that are way better than Fruity Pebbles and uh, cartoons. No offense, those of you who are 10 years old, chronologically or intellectually. But it's this kind of way. Like we imagine like being single that would be, actually no, it's actually good. And, and to experience what it lives like, what it's like to live like in the fruit of the spirit, learning and living inside of that self-control that Paul talks about here is a beautiful, beautiful, good thing. And honestly too, the spiritual fruit of self-control, the spiritual fruit of sexual self-control is something that every single one of us needs to be living in. Every single, God sits in judgment on each one of us, our sexuality. God says, you are a sexual sinner. If you have any sort of lust, any sort of discontent with your spouse, if you're married, if, you have any sort of, if you're having any sort of sex outside of marriage, then you're committing adultery. Well, that's every single person in this room of age. And so, all of us should be learning to live in this fruit of the Spirit, learning self-control. And, those who are unmarried and have this gift of singleness are living in a really intense beauty of this Holy Spirit gift. Okay, third, the unmarried life is also a gift, using the word gift here. So the unmarried life is good. It's for those who are living in self-control. And then finally, the unmarried life is a gift. And again, this is all just sort of like intro to when we get to 25 to 35 in a few weeks. Paul says, I wish that all were I, as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God one of one kind and one of another. So he says, I, I wish that everybody here were unmarried, but not everybody has that gift. He calls being unmarried a gift. Now, what, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by, the un, by being unmarried as a gift? He doesn't mean I don't think, oh man, I don't have to put up with a woman, or I don't have any screaming kids running around, or I don't stay up at night worrying, worrying what time my teenager's coming home, or worrying about my kids' grades in college. I don't think he means that. The word, that, the word that he uses there for gift is not just a generic word for gift. It's actually a word, uh, charisma, which is the same exact word he uses for spiritual gift in 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. That word charisma means a gift given by the, well, I'll just read a little bit to you. He said, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, now concerning spiritual gifts, brother, I do not want you to be uninformed. He uses the same exact word there, gift, as he uses for uh, being single is a gift back in uh, chapter 7. He goes on to explain, here's what the spiritual gifts are, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God is appointed in the church. And now he goes through a list of spiritual gifts. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administra administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? He could have added in there, are all unmarried? Or is everybody single? You know, the implied answer is no. Not, not everybody has every spiritual gift. Why? 
Because the spiritual gifts are gifts given to us, each one of us, by the Holy Spirit for the mutual service of each other. Each one of us is given for the mutual service of each other. Okay, so that is all wrapped up in, it's not the mutual service of each other, but also the mutual love of each other. Because right after this text I just read, he goes and he says this, but earnestly desire the higher gifts and I'll show you a still more excellent way. And then it goes into the famous 1 Corinthians 13 text where he says, I could have all the spiritual gifts in the world, but if I don't have love, it doesn't count for anything. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I, prophetic fa- if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Okay, that's what spiritual gifts are. Spiritual gifts are the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives each one of us for the mutual love and service of each other. So go back to 1 Corinthians 7 now. When Paul says, my singleness is a gift that God has given me, he doesn't mean like, wow, it's so nice to be able to travel whenever I want. That's probably true, but the word gift here, he doesn't use the generic word for gift, he uses the word for spiritual gift, which means this. Singleness is a tool that God gives the church for the mutual service and love and building up of the body of Christ. Those of you so for those of you who are married, we need to start utilizing the gifts of the unmarrieds, which means, by the way, I'm gonna try, I'm, not, I'm, not gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna fail at this, but I'm gonna try not to use the word single from here on out because single is a misnomer. Single means kind of like I'm a free individual, but actually unmarried is better because there are no free individuals because all of us have been bought by God and all of us belong to each other. Spouse, kids, church family, community, all of, us have, all of us belong to God and all of us belong to each other. And so there are no singles. There are unmarried people. And for, if you're unmarried, I would just say, don't waste your unmarriedness. This is not a time to enjoy. This is not me time. Don't use this as me time. This is a gift that God has given you. You are free from certain sort of anxieties that other people are burdened with. Rightly so. God, God ordained marriage. Use that freedom not so you can watch more cartoons and eat more Fruity Pebbles so that you can love and serve each other. This is very, very important. The word single is not the best descriptor because we're in the body of Christ. What does this mean? This means that Jesus died on the cross to reconcile us to each other. Jesus died on the cross, not primarily so that you could go to heaven when you die. Jesus died on the cross to create a new family of people. And that means for those of you who are unmarried, who are believers, God died on the cross. God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to reconcile you to all of us and to our spouses and to our kids, to your kids if you have them. And so live in light of that. Jesus died to reconcile you to to everybody else, not to live life alone. Second of all, Jesus rose from the dead to empower you with the spiritual gift of love and service. So start to live in that spiritual gifting of love and service. Married people, don't marginalize the unmarrieds. Unmarried people, don't waste your unmarriedness. Use it to serve and love the community in the name of Jesus, who died and rose from the dead for us. Okay, let's pray. God, help all of us, married and unmarried, to start living this First Corinthians 7, 4 principle, Father, that we don't belong to ourselves, that we're not free agents, that we've been bought by the blood of your Son and we belong to each other. You've called us to love and service to each other. Help us to live in that by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to love and serve all of us all of each other. Father, in your name, for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
One quick note before we have the offering. I forgot to tell you to sign the guest register at the end of the rows and pass those down to the aisles. If you could do that while we have the offering, that would be great. Father, we thank you for being such a good God and for loving us. We thank you for um, marrying us to yourself, for making us your church, your bride, for committing yourself in covenant love to us, for promising never to leave us or forsake us, for promising us that you're going to live with us, for promising us that you'll always be our God and we'll always be your people. Father, help all of us in our relationships with each other to reflect that covenant love that you've given to us, that you've made to us. Help us to reflect that in the way we relate to each other. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray that you would be this week with uh, our, uh, the teenagers who went down to the youth gathering and uh, bless those 14 people and draw them closer to yourself. Uh, use this moment, Father, to shape and transform their minds, to think about you in new and fresh ways, to see 
in their relationship with you, deeper depths of who they are and of who you are, of realizing again and more and more how much you love them and how committed you are to them. Father, I pray especially as other living with each other and traveling with each other and worshiping with each other and eating with each other and hanging out with each other, that in their communal life together, that your Holy Spirit, using each of the gifts that he's given to those guys, that they would start to understand in deeper and fresh ways who you are, ways that can only be discovered in community, ways of seeing things in the Bible and seeing things in the world that can only happen when we live in committed relationship with other Christians. Father, would you show them that this week and would you transform them more and more through that experience and by the power of your Holy Spirit and word, would you transform them more and more to look like your son, Jesus? Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray that you'd be with everybody uh, in our congregation and all, all of our friends as well who are sick and who are struggling with physical illness and um, worry and with mental struggles and with financial struggles and um, relationships that are broken and people struggling with uh, who they are in their marriages, people struggling with who they are in their singleness. Father, would you meet all of us uh, where we're at and give us hope and comfort knowing that you are healing us and that you are making all things new. Lord, in your mercy. We pray all these things because you are the good God. You're the God who's made us in your image and, and, and didn't stop there. When we rebelled against you, you took deep and profound and very, very damaging to yourself steps to reconcile us. And by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, who paid for our sins and reconciled us to you and to each other, we enter into your throne room now, praying these prayers in his name. Amen. Let's confess our faith now with the words of the Nicene Creed. It's printed in your bulletin. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you. O Lord our God, King of all creation, for you've had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
Grant us your spirit, gracious Father, that we may give heed to the testament of your Son in true faith, and above all, firmly take to heart the words with which Christ gives to us his body and blood for our forgiveness. By your grace, lead us to remember and give thanks for the boundless love which he manifested to us, when by pouring out his precious blood he saved us from your righteous wrath and from sin, death, and hell. Grant that we may receive the bread and wine, that is, his body and blood, as a gift, guarantee, and pledge of his salvation. Graciously receive our prayers, deliver and preserve us. To you alone, O Father, be all glory, honor, and worship, with the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. We're about to have Holy Communion, and if you're visiting with us this morning, I try to make this reminder every uh, couple months or so, and, and you're not a member of our church, and you want to take Holy Communion, and you're wondering, should I come forward and receive communion or not? I just encourage you to read the f- front blurb and the bulletin. We as Lutheran Christians believe that we are inherently sinful, and that we desperately need saved, and that God has given us all kinds of hope by sending his son Jesus Christ and promising to forgive our sins by his shed blood and by his resurrection. If you believe that you're a sinner, if you believe that Jesus is God in flesh who came to save you and died on the cross and rose from the dead for your salvation, if you believe, in addition to those basic Christian beliefs, that in Holy Communion Jesus is here present giving us all of himself, body and soul, then you're more than welcome to come. If you have any questions about that, Please feel free to talk to me afterwards and we can discuss these sorts of things. I love those sorts of conversations. But let's begin Holy Communion now. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. 
Now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Bless the Lord. Lord bless you and keep you. Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. If God's given you the Holy Spirit for gifting to love and serve each other, the way to figure out what those gifts are is to do it in community. And so have conversations, find out where people are at, find out how you can love them more. Just talk about whatever you want. That's the way to find out how the Holy Spirit's working and experience that. Go in peace.